Hello listeners, if you are particularly interested in the classical world, environmental issues, like getting outside, or just want to hear a unique perspective on many of the environmental issues facing the world today, particularly in a humanist focus, you're in the right place. I'm Kevin Johnson. I'm Dane Scott. And today we're going to be talking about natural areas of sanctuary, uh, particularly in conservation and what, as humans, have our feelings been historically towards these regions, and uh, what that has developed into moving forward and into the modern day. So personally, uh, I feel that as Americans, we have been extremely fortunate to grow up in a country that values preserved natural landscapes, uh, particularly in the, with the development of the National Park Service. Uh, as, as someone who loves to get outdoors and hike, I am sure I speak for many of us when I say that I'm incredible, incredibly thankful for the National Park Service. And along with that, I am interested in what the general humanistic view um, for conservation is uh, moving forward. Right. Um, and I am really interested in what ancient religion was like. So definitely exploring how these sacred spaces and sanctuaries played a part in that, in their religion and culture and ritual, um, like how that influences us now and how that influenced them. So we're going to try to answer a couple questions uh, in our discussion today. Uh, first, uh, we're going to put out there, uh, what do we think of the modern idea of conservation? And is it a modern phenomenon or has it gone back to antiquity? Uh, along with that, we're also going to discuss, um, is have, has our view of exploiting an aesthetically pleasing or sacred area, uh, is, is that the same as it was in the ancient world? And what would the ancients perhaps think of Trump's executive order to shrink the bear's ear and grand staircase national monuments? So we have a lot on the docket today, um, but we're just going to get right into it. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so first, I'm going to explain uh, and describe what a sacred space and sanctuary was for the ancient Greeks and Romans. Um, so according to John Pedley, he's a professor of classical archaeology from the University of Michigan, um, a sacred space or sanctuary was a place set aside from the secular world of humans. Um, it was a place where gods were worshipped and rituals uh, were t took place. Um, often in like archaic, the, the archaic period, it was only a small altar or a hearth that was present, but later when the, these civilizations became more opulent and more advanced, significant stone structures were built to commemorate these gods in these spaces. Um, and sanctuaries were usually in places of natural phenomena. Um, so like a mountaintop, or a headland tree, or a cave, or a spring or grove, or a very, very large boulder. Um, according to Pliny the Elder in his um, Natural History, Book 12, he says that trees were the first temples of the gods, and even now simple country people dedicate a tree to ex of exceptional height to a god with the ritual of olden times, and we worship forests and the very silences they contain. So J. Donald Hughes, in his uh, book Environmental Problems of the Greeks and Romans, he states that these sacred spaces were so special to these ancient peoples that they often created rules and regulations about um, how to you know, enter into a sacred space and who could enter and what could be in there. Um, so in chapter 11 of his book, he details all these different um, practices the Romans and Greeks would have um, for if you needed to take wood for a special ritual from a tree in a sacred grove or how to you know, interact with these groves on a daily, uh, or sanctuaries on a daily basis. Um, so an example of an ancient sanctuary that's now popular is Olympia. Um, so Olympia was a bit, uh, in, ancient, uh, in ancient times, it was just 
a grove of um, unarranged trees that the ancients thought were sacred. Um, they called the, the center of the Altus. Um, and then as the sacred space became more popular, they built more substantial structures like the Temple of Hera and the Temple of Zeus or the Pelopion to commemorate these spaces. And eventually the, um, the Olympic Games were held here every four years. So as Dane was saying, um, of course, there was a great affinity by the ancient Greeks and Romans for particular religious areas like Olympia. Uh, but they were also, as, as Hughes uh, describes, um, there's also a great affinity for the natural world uh, just because they found such aesthetic beauty in it. Um, I, of course, growing up in the Mediterranean landscape, uh, this would be uh, expected of them um, for its beautiful sea, rocky islands, forests, um, mountains, and just vast uh, array of uh, geographical structures. Um, and this really comes out in the art and paintings of the ancient Greeks, which depict beautiful landscapes and animals that are in motion and alive. And this shows their affinity for the wilderness and the untouched natural world um, in all its beauty. And this is reflected also in, in their behaviors, uh, particularly in the climbing of mountains, as uh, famously Emperor Hadrian uh, climbed Mount Etna at sunrise uh, to see its beauty, which was a tradition uh, for many ancient, adventurous ancient Greek and Romans uh, to take on this challenge. And this was followed up by uh, many other philosophers like Empedocles and uh, Lucilius the Younger, as not only perhaps for its beauty, but and, uh, it was also performed perhaps for inspiration, um, as, of course, uh, these, they were taking advantage of the beauty of this natural area um, and holding it in high regard. And this shows also in a religious sense uh, just kind of the importance that they place on uh, the wilderness and kind of the untouched natural world as, uh, apart from areas like Olympia, uh, just the wilderness in general was seen as uh, places um, where the gods were present, as Hughes describes. Um, it, whenever the humans would invoke the gods, they would come out of the wilderness. Um, and there was just a great uh, affinity for the natural beauty and untouched landscapes in their natural forms. Along with this, in Virgil's great epic about the creation of the Roman race, uh, the Aeneid, he describes Aeneas going through all his many perils and treks uh, through the Mediterranean landscape and all the challenges he has to overcome to get home. Uh, he, Virgil describes Aeneas going, having to go down to the underworld, but before he does so, he has to find a, a golden bow from a sacred grove. Um, and so he does this, and he goes through, as Virgil describes, this very sacred forest um, that was, he describes as the prize of uh, the underworld's Juno, or uh, Demeter. And uh, there, there's a lot of religious power in this area that ties to Dane's, of course, description of uh, Olympia, and that there were these areas uh, that were sacred for their beauty, uh, but also for the religious powers uh, that they held. Right. Um, so we can see that these uh, beliefs and uh, traditions held by the ancients can uh, be transferred. And we see that even in modern and pre-modern times. Um, so Henry David Thoreau, he's a famous transcendentalist, um, in his novel Walden or Life in the Woods, he wrote that we need the tonic of the wilderness at the same time that we are earnest to explore and learn all things 
We require that all things be mysterious and unexplorable, that land and sea be indefinitely wild, unsurveyed and, un and un unfathomed by us because they are unfathomable. We can never have enough of nature. Um, so we see that even now, you know, the, na uh, the ancients needed nature to worship and they needed it to uh, really connect with the, the higher powers and um, you know, Henry David Thoreau needed it to really explore what it meant to be a human and how to, you know, there's a big, bigger questions that nature can answer. And one can see, too, uh, this transcendental age as a, as a tra transition, perhaps, from the ideas of the ancient world about conservation to the modern era, as in this age, there was a lot of industrial buildup, and this caused a lot of transcendentalists like Thoreau uh, to seek out and go into nature and um, have it inspire them and create some kind of lost uh, sense of being um, that has kind of been weeded out by the industrial age. And apart from Thoreau, many other transcendentalists, uh, authors and artists um, like George Catlin, who was an artist and author who explored the American Great Plains and particularly on Native American relations uh, with the American colonialists, he was greatly angered by the exploitation of the American interior after he had spent, gone through many beautiful areas and painted many beautiful paintings about of the American landscape, he would then find ones that were being exploited by Americans um, and even Native Americans, which was he was very surprised at, um, but particularly by the influence of Americans. Uh, particularly in the bison hunt uh, was really turned him off and got him invigorated as the Native Americans had traditionally used the bison in a very sustainable way of not only taking their fur, but also all of their meat, all of their bones, and putting it to use. Whereas the American trappers would only use the bison for the craze for bison robes, which was um, very, very highly valued in uh, the, that era. Um, and American colonials and American settlers would who trekked out into the American interior would pay Native Americans to hunt down bison and completely change the tide where they would just take the hides from the bison and leave the body to rot. And this spurred on George Catlin to call on a need for something like a National Park Service in his book Letters and Notes on the Manners, Customs, and Condition of North American Indians as he saw that we needed to protect these areas and prevent their exploitation. As he said, by some great protecting policy of government in a magnificent park, a nation's park containing man and beast and all the wildness and freshness of their natural beauty. So he, he called for uh, areas which would be cut off from American and human intervention. It would be allowed to be open in their natural forms um, and not be exploited uh, by any uh, developers or trappers alike. And this came about, and finally, in 1916, after an array of national parks had been set up for the first time, uh, like Yellowstone National Park, but the National Park Service was set up by the Organic Act in 1969 by President Woodrow Wilson, uh, which called as its purpose to conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects and the wildlife therein 
and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such a manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. So Wilson took what was there from transcendentalists who wanted protection of areas to be there for future generations in their pristine form. And he takes this, one can even say, from the ancients who believed in certain areas that needed to be protected and away from human development and human exploitation. Right, right, right. Um, so we see that you know there's definitely this respect for nature that that's present in uh, modern times and especially in ancient times too. But there's also that need to exploit nature, like the trappers exploiting the bison or um, and using it for you know frivolous purposes. Um, we can also see that in uh, antiquity as well. So um, in Lucan describes in his Civil War, um, which details uh, Caesar's Civil War fought in 49 BC. Um, in Book 3, Caesar clears a sacred grove um, in his siege of the Spanish city of Massilia. Um, and the sacred grove was described as inviolate for ages, um, that its, its very essence was more powerful than humanity. Um, however, Caesar uh, takes up an axe and strikes it down, or strikes a tree down, um, to prove to his men that you know, he is more powerful than this, gro this grove of trees, and that um, his, his willpower and his determination to get to conquer Massilia is more powerful than whatever superstition is held um, in these in these groves and these trees. And one can see the effect of uh, what the public would feel about this destruction of a sacred area as the men saw religious persecution perhaps for cutting down uh, this grove and so they were afraid to exploit this area that had been preserved for for a very long time. Similarly though uh, in today's society um, people don't see potential religious persecution for it. Uh, in, in Trump's uh, executive order shrinking many national monuments, including Bears Ear and the Grand Staircase, um, people have gone to these areas and had some kind of religious or spiritual experience there, and they feel a deep connection to these areas. And the selling off of them, um, release of federal protection of, of some of these areas, um, has created a fervor similar to perhaps the fervor of uh, the ancient soldiers um, afraid of religious persecution, but similarly uh, today many people feel are afraid of a loss of never being able to experience these areas again and have the type of religious experiences that they once had there. Right, so um, we can see that these uh, the sacred spaces really do have an impact on how we as a people and humanity really think of how our place or how we relate to nature itself and how nature relates to us in our daily life. Um, so personally, we're both students at the College of Holy Cross in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. So right now, we're looking at trees and beautiful um, grasscapes on our campus, and we can tell that you know this is definitely a sacred space to us. Maybe not in a religious sense, but definitely a space for learning and space for uh, thinking about higher questions. And let this be some inspiration to get outside, explore your natural landscape around you. Um, and feel the kind of similar uh, religious, um, emotional, visceral reactions that the ancients felt uh, going in their backyard and exploring sacred areas as well. All right, thank you.